0: You know, one of the things that you can almost always count on, if you have an event at the church where you provide food, people will come, (laughs) but you can advertise a prayer meeting months in advance. You can send personal invitations. You just get a handful, pardon me, because most people just aren't that excited about prayer. We ought to be excited about prayer, and certainly by this time in our series, you ought to be you know, feeling a sense of excitement when we approach this topic of prayer and when you think about your own personal prayer life. Our, our goal here is not just to have a, a series of, of, of sermons that we can say we taught uh, at the beginning of the year in 2022. Our, our goal here is to help you understand what the Bible says about prayer in order that you might become a person of prayer, a person who prays and who prays more effectively. So again, I just, I just want to remind you, we should be excited about the things of God, uh, and we shouldn't be uncomfortable around people that, that are. Uh, turn in your Bibles with me uh, to James chapter 4. That's where we're going to be this morning. And as you're turning there, I, I want to go back and, and talk about something that I hope came to your mind last week. You know, Neil brought a tremendous message from Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. He he didn't do the whole Lord's uh, Prayer, but uh, he did those two key verses there and uh, highlighting the instructions that the Lord gives us as we pray for the kingdom of God. You know, I think that's something we need to think about as we pray is our place in the kingdom of God and the, the place of God's kingdom upon the earth right now and And we need to pray as the scripture says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, And of course, that example prayer that that Jesus gives to us uh, begins with those words, and Jesus says, pray like this, and he begins with the words, our Father in heaven. And of course, as a result of that, for centuries, uh, the church has taught, pastors have stood in pulpits and taught that... uh, when we pray, we should always and perhaps only pray to the Father, our Father, who is in heaven. And, uh, and what I want to pose, the question I want to pose to you this morning as an introduction is, is it okay for us to pray to the Lord Jesus or to the Holy Spirit? Uh, I hear people saying amen, and of course you're right, this is such a well-taught church. <laughs> Yeah, the short answer to that question is, you've already acknowledged yourself, is no, it's not wrong. The predominant pattern of prayer, of course, in the New Testament is prayer to the Father. And I think one of the reasons that that pattern is there is because many, perhaps most of the prayers that are recorded for us in Scripture are the prayers of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself. And so certainly it would make sense uh, that he would pray to his Father in heaven Uh, not to himself, and and certainly he doesn't do what we do. I closed my prayer just a moment ago. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I don't think Jesus closed a single prayer that he prayed. In my name, I pray. Amen. He prayed to the Father as we would expect him to do. The disciples, however, do pray to Jesus. Acts 7.59 says this, As they were stoning Stephen... He called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Uh, In 2 Corinthians 12, 8, the Apostle Paul, speaking, of course, of the thorn that was given him in his flesh, says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So I think Scripture clearly teaches that it is absolutely right and appropriate to pray to the Lord Jesus. Nothing wrong with that. At all Now, there are no specific prayers that I could point to this morning, uh, necessarily, that are made to the Holy Spirit in Scripture. But the thing that we must remember is that He, too, is God. Uh, we sang about that just a moment ago, that last praise song. Uh, and, and, you know, that song could be classified if someone were to read it as a prayer. And I believe it certainly was. We were asking God... To do something for us, even to do it this morning. Uh, So I don't believe that it's wrong for us to plead with the Holy Spirit to come and fill this place. I mean, the words of that song, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Uh, Your glory, God, there's the word God, I believe, used interchangeably there with the, the name Holy Spirit. Your glory, God, is what our hearts long for. Your presence, Lord. Uh, so all three of the designations, we would typically refer to Jesus as Lord, to uh, God the Father as God, and to the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit. But in this song that we sung, and I requested that song because of uh, I knew what the words of it were, uh, we have all of those words used interchangeably. The reality is we have a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are all God, equally God, eternally God. God. So, uh, no reason that we shouldn't pray to God the Father, to the Lord Jesus Christ, or even to the Holy Spirit. I mean, the Holy Spirit is described in Scripture as our comforter, our counselor. Uh, therefore, I believe that there are those times that it is appropriate to pray directly to the Holy Spirit, especially when we are asking for things that relate specifically to His areas of ministry. Uh, So I just kind of wanted to clear that up in case there was any thought in anybody's mind. And we can move on now to James chapter 4. We're going to look at the first three verses. And let me just say this. Uh, And again, I I think that you'll agree with me at this point. Uh, There is much strife and conflict in our world today. I mean, of course, I think our minds probably immediately go... Uh, to Eastern Europe, to what's going on there with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Uh, and certainly, as we've said in weeks past, uh, we need to continue to pray uh, for the people of Ukraine, and and especially for our Christian brothers and sisters there. Uh, They are experiencing conflict, strife, uh, in a way that, uh, well, none of us have ever. Uh, James indicates that there is a reason Uh, for much of this strife and conflict. Uh, And he doesn't point to men like Vladimir Putin as the reason for the strife and the conflict. He points to poor praying among his people, praying poorly. Uh, The reality is, church, uh, God is at work in and through us, his people, uh, we have the power of God available to us, and, and there is perhaps nothing more powerful that you or I can do than to pray. Uh, and yet, for whatever reason, often that is not what we do, or uh, it becomes a last resort. Uh, I think what Neil and I have both tried to encourage in these last weeks is that praying should be our first line of defense our first line of offense. Uh, Praying is what we should do. Praying is what should characterize our lives. First, foremost, not not as a last resort. Well, let's let's read together James chapter 4. Again, just the first three verses there. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, you can follow along. I believe the words will be on the screen up at the front here. James simply asks this question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And then he answers it. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet, cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passions. So what James does for us in these first 3 verses, he he describes what it is to pray poorly. He uses the word or at least we translate the word he uses as wrongly to pray wrongly, to ask wrongly. So we want to be people of prayer, but when we pray, we want to ask rightly. Let's let's pray to the Lord right now. Father, we we come to you in Jesus name. We thank you, Lord, for this privilege of prayer. We thank you for the abundance of instruction in your word, the, the many examples that we have of, of prayer and how we are to pray. Lord, there's really no excuse for us not to pray. And so I pray right now, Father, that I uh, would stop making excuses for my lack of prayer uh, and that I would become a man. Of prayer, A man whose life is characterized by prayer. A man whose life is so characterized by prayer that people who know me, uh, that, that would be one of the first things that would come to their mind. So Lord, I, I pray for each and every one of us here today that that would be the case. Lord, help us to pray well, to understand uh, not only the high and holy privilege that prayer is, but the tremendous responsibility that it should be in our lives. Father, much of the conflict, much of the strife, much of the anger and fussing and fighting that we see in our homes, our churches, and in our world would cease to exist if we would pray rightly. So we ask all of this today in Jesus' name, amen. And amen. The first thing that I would call to your attention that uh, would lead to praying poorly would be what James describes as quarrels and fights. And then, then, then he says that these are the result of the passions, your passions, that are at war within you. And so what I would say is that poor praying is the result of misguided passions. Uh, in and of itself, that word passions is not necessarily a bad thing. God created us with certain desires. Uh, however, this word uh, in the New Testament is almost used exclusively for evil or wicked desires. Uh, James simply asks us to consider the source of the strife and the conflict that we not only experience in our own lives, but that we see in the world at large. And, and so he asks, what, what causes these things? Uh, first of all, what causes these quarrels? The word quarrel speaks of prolonged disputes or disagreements. Uh, perhaps there is a person that comes to mind uh, that when you think of your relationship with this person, What characterizes that relationship is just this underlying feeling of resentment, anger. You got mad at this person at some point, either it was something that you did or something that they did, and they got mad at you, and and since then, you guys have just been mad at each other. You don't want to see one another, you don't want to speak to one another, you don't want to forgive one another, you just want to be angry. Be left alone with your anger. That's kind of what that word quarrels is all about. Just this this underlying, always angry, resentful, bitter feeling that that characterizes some relationships. And I think if we're honest today, every one of us has somebody that that's how we feel about them. And perhaps that's how they feel about us as well. Shouldn't be that way, church. The Bible even says before you bring your offering to the Lord, if you have a problem with your brother, you should go to your brother and make it right and then come back and offer your sacrifice, offer your gift to God. So, what causes these quarrels? And, and then he asks, what causes these fights? Now, the word fights, again, it's something that goes right along with quarrels, but it speaks of the little momentary bursts. Of anger, you know, sometimes I think about husbands and wives. And sometimes this characterization of a relationship fits, right? Oh yeah, we live together. We coexist. We raised our kids together. We take care of a home together. We may even come to church together, but you know, most of the time our relationship is just kind of boiling underneath. We don't really like each other too much. And because of that, every now and then, Fights erupt, voices are raised, tempers flare, words are spoken that should never be spoken to a brother or sister in Christ, much less to someone's husband or wife. That's what that word fights speaks of, these bursts of angry conflict. And and James says, hey, they're among you. We have to be honest this morning and acknowledge these words are all too often Characteristic of us and our relationships, so many relationships characterized by this smoldering anger that results in ever deepening disagreement and ever increasing verbal battles. These, James says, result from your passions that are at war within you. That's where this conflict comes from. Again, misguided passions. Evil passions, impure motives. Uh, The word speaks of one's selfish desire for personal pleasure. And boy, doesn't that just characterize the United States of America for the most part? People who are bent on satisfying their own selfish desire for personal pleasure. It doesn't matter who gets in the way. I'll run right over you if I have to. Because you don't really matter to me. Only I matter to me. That's what misguided passions are. Selfishness would be the easiest way to explain this word. We derive our English word hedonism from this Greek word. And of course, hedonism is the belief that personal pleasure is the highest good and thus the greatest goal for all mankind. I just want to be happy. I just want to be happy. It doesn't really matter to me whether you're happy or not. That's the idea here. These passions are characterized by the pursuit of self-satisfaction. Again, selfishness. Jesus taught when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? he, He said the greatest Old Testament commands were to love God with everything that you are and to love your neighbor as yourself. Completely inconsistent with the selfishness that we see so prevalent in our world today and sadly so prevalent in our church today, so prevalent in our homes today. In Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes these words. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, listen to this, How crazy is this Apostle Paul? He says, count others more significant than yourselves. Come on, Paul, you really mean that? Paul is writing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He really means it. God really means it. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. This is where the little lady in the church told her preacher, you've gone from preaching to meddling now. (laughs) This is hitting too close to home. Church, those words should apply to us and to every one of us. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves and let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interests of others. That's really what New Testament love is all about, right? Sacrificially living for the benefit of others. That's what we're called to do. And that's the true mark that Jesus said will give evidence to the reality of our faith. Men will know that you're truly my disciples, he says, if you have love, one for the other. Which would mean counting others more significant than yourselves, looking out for their interests and not yours alone. Of course, you know, I can stand up here and say these words, tell you that they're found in Philippians chapter 2, that these are not only the words of the Apostle Paul who spoke with apostolic authority, but that these are the very words of the Lord Jesus Christ as they were revealed to the Apostle Paul through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I can say all of those things, but you know what? We still struggle to do it, don't we? We struggle to pray. We've been talking about prayer for how many weeks now? And yet we struggle to pray. And James contends that our misguided, selfish desires are the reason. They are at war within us. In other words, these passions oppose what is right and good. You know, as believers, I believe one of the things that God does when He changes our heart, when He takes up residence within us through the person of the Holy Spirit, He changes the desire of our heart, the course that we desire to live out our lives. I mean, everything changes. I can think back to when I became a Christian. Let me tell you, everything in that moment, everything of true significance changed in an instant. Suddenly, the desire of my heart was to love the Lord, to know the Lord, to know God's Word, to follow the Word of God, to accomplish His purposes for my life. None of that, even for a second, ever crossed my mind as a lost person. God changes our hearts. But of course, we know that in spite of this wonderful change that's taken place within us, we still are clothed in this... Sinful flesh, right? Unredeemed flesh. Again, where these passions are born and where they make war within us. And of course what James is talking about here is this inner turmoil, these, these, this inner, these inner desires, these inner false thoughts and pursuits that ultimately come out. And influence what's on the outside our family our children our friends our church our government you know we could say without question the mess we have in Washington DC it's because we just don't pray the way we should we don't think rightly you know what most Americans go to the polls and vote every year without question it's for their pocketbooks That's what's important. It's the economy, stupid. Remember that slogan campaign that surfaced in the 90s? Sadly, it's all too true. Misguided passions, an emphasis, a value placed, a pursuit of wrong things that lead to strife and struggle and quarrels and fighting and all kinds of evil that we see. Every day, Paul says it this way in Galatians five seventeen. He says, "For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other." And these desires of the flesh, these passions, these misguided passions, they wreak havoc in our own personal lives, in our families, in our churches, and again, ultimately, in the world. All around us. And of course, these misguided passions, they lead us to misguided priorities. Listen to what what James says here. Again, in light of this, these these passions that war within us. He says in verse 2: You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And then, of course, he simply says, it's just so simple, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. In other words, church, our priorities are wrong. Why is it that so many of the things we desire fail to be given to us? Why do we fail to experience them in our lives? Well, again, it's because of misguided priorities. Misguided passions result in misguided priorities. You desire and you do not have, James says, so you murder Rather than pray, you take matters into your own hands. That's the idea here. And isn't that what we do? Rather than go to the Lord, and maybe one of the reasons that we don't go to the Lord is because we know we're not thinking rightly about things. Maybe we're a little bit ashamed. Maybe a little bit embarrassed. We would, we would never ask God, you know, I mean, dear Lord, you know, I... I uh, I, I really need that 6,000 square foot home on the hill there that I love so much with the big pool in the backyard. And uh, I mean, we'd be a little embarrassed to go to the Lord with, with a prayer like that, wouldn't we? So maybe our prayerlessness is because we realize that we're not asking for those things that we ought to ask for. But I, I think more than not, it's just a, a reflex, a default we take matters into our own hands. We don't even think about going to the Lord in prayer. We're just going to do it ourselves. The word murder, of course, can literally mean to kill. But here, the way James uses it, it speaks of really personal verbal attacks, malicious accusations. Somebody in our mind is standing in the way of us getting what we need, what we want. And so in order to get what I want, I've got to tear that person down. And let me tell you, I'm willing to do that. And don't we see this kind of stuff all the time? Really, that word murder, we could just put the words character assassination in there. If you're standing in the way of what I want, I'll kill you. I'll ruin your reputation. I'll drag your name through the mud. I'll dig up dirt in your family and I'll expose it for the whole world to see. I'll gossip about you and let everybody know that you're really not all you purport yourself to be. That's what that word murder means. I know there's probably not a one of us in this room that would result to taking an innocent life, but how many of us have willingly assassinated someone's character? Jesus speaks of this sin in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 23. He says, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And we all say amen, right? Murderers should be liable to judgment. But Jesus said, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. In other words, Jesus equates being angry with your brother. Again, this kind of smoldering, endless Anger that characterizes and causes these quarrels and fights that James is talking about. Jesus said, you, if that's you, you're you're liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Oh, wait a minute. Just an insult? I love to insult my brother. Whoever says, you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. You know how quick we are sometimes to hurl slanders, lies, innuendo, vulgarity even against someone that we think is standing in the way of us getting what we want. Jesus pretty much equates that to murder. You've killed that person with your words. Let me tell you, you're liable to the judgment just like it would be if you'd taken their life. Jesus goes on, or James goes on to say, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Again, you don't pray. You you fight. You quarrel. If murder doesn't get us what we want, then we'll lash out with an arsenal of angry, hostile words that are meant to intimidate and subdue those who stand in the way of our satisfaction. You know, where I see this most often is just in people arguing to prove that they're right. Don't we love to do that? Somebody disagrees with us, oh, you shouldn't have done that. Uh, I'm going to stand here and I'm going to argue with you until you come around to my point of view. You know, there was a time in ministry... That I naively thought that if I could just sit down with a person who had a disagreement with me and spend enough time with them and, and calmly explain my position that, that, that everybody would eventually come around to my way of thinking. <laughs> <laughs> that is the farthest thing from the truth. You know, sometimes I guess we just got to agree to disagree. And we got to love one another, even when we disagree. Oh, you voted for a Democrat? i got to love you even though I disagree. Oh, you're a lifelong Republican? Eh, You know, I should love you even though I might not agree with that. We should love one another. Not quarrel and fight. James says you covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. God never intended for these kinds of wicked actions to be the means of our fulfillment or happiness. Uh, again, James makes it pretty simple. He says you don't have because you do not ask. Psalm 84:11 says this, "No good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly." Church prayer must be our priority. We should go to God first and then allow him to work in and through us. Again, all too often, we spend our time on, well, we waste our time on useless endeavors, on malicious endeavors. I mean, you know, when people argue Typically, they will tell just enough of the truth to get their way. You ever ever realize that? Experience that? You ever use that tactic? I'm going to tell you just enough of the truth to get my way. We use words like never and always. Well, you never are on my side. You always do this or that. Those words never and always are never true. (laughs) But we use those words because we want to hurt people. We want to mischaracterize them. Perhaps there's somebody else who's listening to us argue. We want them to know that we're right and this other person's wrong. But James simply says you do not have because you do not ask. So, these misguided passions lead to misguided priorities, which ultimately lead to misguided prayers. You ask wrongly, James says. You you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We can pray wrongly, or as the title of the message, we can pray poorly. And, And I'm not trying to scare you away from prayer, quite the opposite. And really the only way that we can pray poorly is by praying with these kind of misguided motivations, with evil intentions or impure motives. So we must pray rightly with proper or righteous motives. James 5.16, just a few verses over from where we are in our text this morning, says that the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. What does it mean to pray wrongly? How do we pray wrongly? To pray wrongly means to ask with evil intentions or impure motives. An example of this kind of praying is found in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. Just prior to those verses that Neil shared last week, Jesus is talking to his disciples about how to pray. And he says this. He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. There is an impure motive, an evil motive for prayer. I'm going to pray in order for others to think that I'm somebody special. That I have this close connection to God. And that's my motive. I'm praying to impress the people around me. Not really to approach the throne of grace. Not to have God move in some mighty way in my life. I simply want people to think that I got it all together. Jesus says, don't pray like that. That's praying wrongly. He says, truly I say to you, they've received their reward. They may have what they want. People may think they're, boy, that guy can really pray. But that's all they're going to get for their effort. No answer from the Lord. James explains what it means to ask wrongly with the words, to spend it on your passions. Praying wrongly is to pray in order to simply spend whatever God gives on your passions. These impure, wicked desires. The word spend there means to waste or to use up in excessive indulgence. It's the same word that's used in the story of the prodigal son who spent everything, the scripture says, that his father had given him on his own personal pleasure and enjoyment. That's what it means to spend whatever you're asking for on your passions. You're praying purely for yourself. Again, you're praying purely for your own personal satisfaction, Uh, not thinking of others. Not thinking of how you might be a blessing to others. Thinking only of yourself. And inevitably, people who pray like that will squander the things of God, just like the prodigal son did. And find yourself in want. Misguided passions lead to misguided priorities, which leads to misguided Prayers. My desire for myself and for you is that when we pray, we pray effectively. And let me just say this as we, as we close. God, God does want us to experience pleasure. Okay, Don't think for a moment that James is saying or teaching that, that we shouldn't pray for things that make us happy. Uh, God wants us to experience pleasure. However, He wants us to experience the pleasure that comes from Him, comes from knowing Him, comes from walking in His ways, comes from seeing and experiencing His purposes fulfilled in our lives. Psalm 1611 says of God, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Uh, God is not against us experiencing pleasure in our life. Or happiness quite the opposite he just wants us to do it in the right way the way that we will truly experience pleasure and happiness Psalm 37 4 teaches trust in the Lord and do good dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness isn't that a wonderful phrase befriend faithfulness delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart so God wants to give you the desires of your heart. He loves to lavish his gifts upon his children. He loves to do that. So let's be a people of prayer. Let's pray rightly.